Chapter Fifteen, Part Two of the Autobiography of Moncure D. Conway, Volume One. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The first sermon of mine published in Washington was entitled The Old and the New, a sermon containing the history of the first Unitarian Church in Washington City. It was given December thirty first, eighteen fifty four. I remember across all the years the pains taken in the preparation of this historical sermon. No history of the church existed, and for some weeks I had gone about making inquiries of the older families for information. One-third of the sermon was an exhortation relating to the duties transmitted to us by a past altogether honorable. Its composition was indeed a burden. Not yet twenty-three years of age, at my installation I had to give instruction to gray-haired men, to families well acquainted with the conditions of thought and life in the great capital, where I was a novice. I did not enter on my Washington ministry in any polemical spirit. I was anxious to conform, as far as possible, with the sentiments of the community, and to be friendly with the orthodox churches with which our heretical society had established some modus vivendi but soon an occasion arose where it was necessary to assume a recusant attitude. In the summer, 1855, a terrible plague broke out in Virginia, Norfolk and Portsmouth. My church promptly raised a large sum for the sufferers. On September 16th, when a collection was made for that purpose, I gave a discourse on the true and the false in prevalent theories in divine dispensation— Although I opposed the many pulpit assertions that the plague was a judgment from heaven, I had nothing much better than commonplace optimism with which to confront such superstition. The sermon, however, contained a passage which notified my congregation that I was able to see a Satan, if not a God, in the pestilence, namely, the evil institution that degraded labor and herded families into squalid quarters where disease and crime find their nests. The sermon was printed with the following preface. When it was suggested by some who agreed with the sentiments of the following discourse that its publication might be beneficial, the writer, having prepared it in the ordinary course of his ministry, and without any view to publication, declined. Since that, the following resolution has been issued by the Board of Aldermen and the Common Council. Resolved that as, in our time of tribulation, it becomes us to acknowledge the hand of the Almighty, and, by prayer and supplication, call for His merciful aid and deliverance, that, therefore, the Mayor of our city be, and he is hereby, requested to set apart Wednesday, the twenty-sixth instant, as a day of fasting, humiliation, and prayer, that he request the citizens to assemble in their various places of public worship, and offer petitions to Almighty God in behalf of those he has seen fit to visit so sorely, and that he will be pleased to avert from us such terrible calamity." feeling that we cannot assemble on that day to acknowledge the hand of the Almighty, and call for His merciful deliverance from His own hand, nor assist in rendering persons less able to give for the relief of the sufferers, by loss of a day's wages, 
nor bear our testimony, however feeble, in favor of a sanctity which deprives the people of thirty or forty thousand dollars, that the council may have its conscience soothed by a day's crying of Lord, Lord, for its refusal to appropriate five or even one thousand dollars for the sufferers, nor petition him to do the work of our board in averting from us such terrible calamity, we shall not open our church on that day. In place of such ministrations, this discourse is offered to the public. The author does not anticipate much open sympathy with his sentiments, but has yet to learn that the truth may not be most demanded by the time and place that give it the least welcome. Washington, September 21, 1855 I had not consulted my society about closing the church on fast day, but sent word to the committee that I could not personally participate in that function. Nearly all of the society approved my course, but it brought down thunders from most of the pulpits. Having exhausted the pestilence as a topic, they did their part to bring down a divine judgment on the pestilence of heresy. The yellow fever had begun to decline before fast day came. The activity and generosity of our society in helping the sufferers was well known, and the extent to which our pulpit censors had fasted for strife and debate and to smite with the fist served to crowd my church on September 30th, the subject announced being Phariseeism and Fasting. The sarcasms of Isaiah on fasting, and the warnings of Jesus against public fasting supplied me with ammunition, but the absurdities of the preachers were almost self-refuting. Poor little Norfolk, it appeared, had been chosen by deified wrath as a victim for the crimes of all America. An appendix to this discourse, as printed, contains the letter of Lord Palmerston, October 19, 1853, to the Presbytery of Edinburgh, declining their request that the government should appoint a fast day on account of the cholera, his reasons confirming those that led me to protest against the fast day in Washington. To this was added an editorial from the London Times, November 2, 1853, in support of Palmerston's refusal. Its picture of the unctuous popular preacher, who has enough ottomans for a pasha, and enough slippers for a centipede, excited laughter, and the incident was closed. It was a sufficient solace for all sharp criticisms that the poet Longfellow wrote me, Thanks for your brave and manly discourse on the fast. It is a true and valiant word. The most important result of this incident was its revelation that my congregation was essentially rationalistic, and that leading citizens of Washington by no means shared the vulgar superstitions. Although I never had to deal with any further attacks from the pulpits, the positions I had assumed when I came to re-read them did not quite satisfy myself. Possibly some of my more philosophical listeners felt that in refuting some fallacies I had raised problems without solving them. I remember my dear friend Hudson Taylor saying, I wish you would preach us a sermon on God, simply God. I was startled by the demand, 
yet no doubt told him I would try to respond to it, but I had reason to ponder the case of Simonides, who, asked by Hero, who or what was God, required a day to consider, and when Hero came for his answer, another day, and at the end of every day another, the difficulty increasing in proportion with the thought bestowed upon it. I did indeed give a discourse on reverence for God, in a series on the three reverences, in Goethe's Wilhelm Meister, but on reading it now I recall once more Renan's reflection on the many headaches suffered by young men in exchanging one error for another. Early in the nineteenth century several families, chiefly of English birth living in Washington, used to meet on Sunday in each other's houses and read Unitarian literature. They discovered in the city a merchant, Robert Little, formerly a clergyman of the English church, from which he had withdrawn because of his Unitarianism. This led to the formation of a Unitarian society, and its building was dedicated, 1822, by Robert Little. The church was attended at the same time by John Quincy Adams, President, and John C. Calhoun, the famous Southern Senator. Calhoun gave a large subscription, and a gentleman who received it told me that in giving it the Senator said, It will be the religion of the country in fifty years. Robert Little sometimes preached in the House of Representatives, and Jared Sparks, the most eminent Unitarian minister of that time, was elected chaplain of Congress. There had been long intervals in which visitors of national reputation had occupied the pulpit, the most frequent and able of these being Dr. Orville Dewey. This minister and lecturer was a devotee of Daniel Webster. He had excited anti-slavery wrath by an imprudent remark, and he privately said to me that if I preached anti-slavery views in Washington, I would not maintain myself there. The traditions of the Washington pulpit had thus established a very high standard of preaching. This I knew very well, and it was not without trepidation that I entered on my work. I had, however, not only a distinguished, but a generous and sympathetic audience. Never was there a fairer sky above a young minister, and I was for a time able to ignore the small cloud on it. This cloud might be symbolized by one pew, more finely cushioned than the rest. It was that in which President Fillmore had sat, undisturbed by any allusion from the pulpit to his having signed the Fugitive Slave Bill. Justice Daniel of the Supreme Court, my mother's uncle, her half-brother, Cushing Daniel, and other relatives in Washington, treated me with the old affection. I was welcomed in beautiful homes. Mr. Hudson Taylor, now of Poughkeepsie, presently received me into his house, and, though a wealthy man, generously agreed to accept payment rather than have me drift among the boarding-houses. He and his wife gave me a happy home. His brother, Frank, a man of wide reading, and his brilliant wife, nay Wallach, were almost parental in their kindness to me. Their daughters, Charlotte, now Mrs. Robley Evans, Virginia, who married in Poughkeepsie, and Emily, now wife of Frederick McGuire, superintendent of the Cochrane Gallery, and their sons, Morgan, Frank, and Harry, 
now distinguished naval officers, were all charming. The Unitarian social circle in Washington was unsurpassed for intelligence and influence. Mr. Seaton had given to his National Intelligencer a reputation suggested in the story that a jury once decided that if a dead man were found with that paper in his pocket, it was evidence of his respectability. He used to say that the chief editorial art was in knowing what to keep out of a paper. He had been an eminent mayor of Washington, was in every way an attractive gentleman of the old school, and his beautiful mansion in the center of Washington was the seat of hospitality. He and his gracious wife always invited me on Sunday evening, when the family was often joined by their married daughter, the brilliant Mrs. Columbus Monroe. Among other influential citizens who belonged to my church were the Webbs, Woodhulls, Fletchers, Johnsons, parents and sisters of Eastman Johnson, the artist, Wendells, Adamses, Anthony Pollock and his wife, who perished on the ship Bourgogne, the Shanks from Ohio, the Uphams of Salem, the Washburns, Merrills, and Andersons of Maine. Joseph Gales, founder of the National Intelligencer, and of our church, though too infirm to attend, was cordial, and I have in late years often had reason to regret that I did not then know that he was a son of the publisher who sixty years before had fled from prosecution in Sheffield, England, for publishing there Thomas Paine's Rights of Man. Footnote. When Paine, after his terrible experiences in Europe, returned to America in 1802, it was the elder Gales who welcomed him to Washington, despite the rage of the pulpits, and in the National Intelligencer first appeared four of Paine's letters to the citizens of America. End of footnote. Judge Cranch, father of Christopher, poet and artist, was too old to attend church regularly. He died in September 1855, aged 86. My discourse on the life and character of the Honorable William Cranch, L.L.D., late Chief Justice of the District of Columbia, was published by Frank Taylor on the request of the Society. The character and wide influence of this judge, who held his official place fifty-four years, had done more to diffuse in Washington respect for Unitarianism than all the ministries together. He was fond of music and had an organ in his house. I was told that on one occasion, when the organist failed to come, the beautiful old man with his flowing white locks arose from his pew, ascended to the choir, and played all the music. There were in the society persons of special knowledge and ability whose friendship was invaluable to me. Among these was Professor Espy, the meteorologist, a born philosopher, necessitarian, another being Dr. Nichols, physician of the insane asylum. Lieutenant Edward Hunt, U.S. Army, an admirable gentleman and scientific man, had recently married Miss Helen Fisk, in later years known by her literary works published under the initials H.H. Helen had never been in a Unitarian church until she came with her husband to ours. Without being exactly beautiful, she was of distinguished appearance, tall, fair, and with candid beaming eyes, 
in which kindliness contended with penetration. She was highly educated, brilliant, and sometimes satirical in conversation, dressed with elegance, and, while laughing at the world of fashion, entered it with an eagerness that suggested previous repression, perhaps of a religious kind. While always adequate to the functions of her social position, they could not stale her infinite variety. She could be philosophical at one moment, merry and witty at another, and in whatever vein was engaging. But she then showed no inclination for literary pursuits. It was a serious loss to me when the hunts were ordered off to Rhode Island, but I visited them there. I had given Helen, at Washington, Emerson's works, and the study of these, and also the development of her beautiful little son Rennie, made her more serious. She told me that she had one day found herself in the same railway car with Emerson, and both being alone she introduced herself in my name. Emerson had received her cordially, and she had with him an hour's conversation, the memory of which was treasured. She was a lover of Hawthorne's works. She said that she could test the intellect or heart of any acquaintance by inducing him or her to read one or another of Hawthorne's tales, and afterwards discovering what they thought of it. She gave one of her guests, a military man, the snow image to read during an hour's absence of herself and husband, and afterwards found he regarded it as simply a sort of fairy-tale for a child. So I adapted my conversation to a gentlemanly blockhead. Lieutenant Hunt was killed by an explosion while engaged on some experiments in his office at Newport, and that tragedy, combined with the death of their charming boy Rennie, wrought in Helen Hunt, an effect of which I recognize some trace in her beautiful tale, Mercy Philbrick's Choice. Her hair did not indeed at once turn white, like that of Mercy Philbrick, nor did she enter the pulpit, but she became a beloved teacher to a parish which included all lovers of literature. At Washington, Helen ridiculed everyone with a mission. The later years of her life were devoted to the cause of American Indians. As the receptions of the President were those of the nation, and not of the particular president who happened to be its chamberlain, I attended them occasionally until the wars in Kansas began. The receptions were very brilliant, and it is a pity that no artist painted the scene. Nearly every lady was dressed in white, décolleté to an extent now rarely known in America off the stage, but evening dress for gentlemen was not general. President Pierce, was gracious and gentlemanly as a host. Of the ladies who received with him, I have no remembrance at all. The President's countenance, though not intellectual, had a certain expression of refinement and even benevolence with which I could never harmonize the outrages in Kansas. All men become good creatures, but so slow, says Browning. What has become of Pierce? I cannot think a man bad-hearted who was beloved by Horatio Bridge, U.S. Navy, whom I knew slightly, but would have tried to make my friend had I foreseen his book about Nathaniel Hawthorne, and who so gently soothed the last days of Hawthorne's life. 
there has been many a worse man in the White House than Franklin Pierce, but there might be written on his tomb the words of Buddha. Whatever a hater may do to a hater, or an enemy to an enemy, a wrongly directed mind will do us greater mischief. End of chapter 15, part 2